Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Fred Goodman talks about Woodlawn Cemetery in the North Bronx. A massive necropolis of 400 immaculately and privately maintained acres, Woodlawn serves as the final resting place for 300,000 New Yorkers, counting among its long-term residents Herman Melville, Duke Ellington, Robert Moses, Fiorella LaGuardia, Miles Davis, and dozens of Gilded Age Titans. Although it remains unknown to many who live even in New York City, it's a place of great cultural and historical significance, as well as architectural distinction. Drawing on his book about Woodlawn, Goodman reminds us here that before the age of philanthropic foundations, tombstones served as a way for the rich and famous to demonstrate their stature in the afterlife. And here, in a series of portraits, he restores some of those once eminent, now half-forgotten New Yorkers buried in this, the city's largest cemetery. For more podcasts like this, and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. My name is Fred Goodman. I'm a journalist, author, New Yorker. One of my books is about Woodlawn Cemetery. It's called The Secret City, Woodlawn Cemetery and the Buried History of New York. And it's not really intended as a walking tour. And it's not even really a straight book about Woodlawn. It's a book that takes Woodlawn Cemetery as a way to uh, reconstruct scenes out of New York history. As a New Yorker, and even if you're not, or if you're just a visitor, uh, you may get the sense that I frequently had that uh, in New York, history is sort of omnipresent and all around you, whether it's uh, wondering what that street got its name, or where the park's name came from, or what was here before that building. It's just a sense that New York has always been an evolving, alive place, and that its history manages to slip away from us pretty quickly. One of the good places to excavate that history <laughs> is Woodlawn, although don't tell them I said that. I think of the cemetery as really on a par with some of New York's museums and libraries as a way to really sort of satisfy your curiosity about the city that we're in. You just need to really be willing to scratch the surface. Woodlawn was opened in 1863. It's 400 acres. And uh, it's one of the great examples of what's called the landscape lawn style of cemetery architecture. Think of it as a rural style of cemetery. And they were designed in part because there were no city parks at that point. The, the sort of granddaddy of this is Mount Auburn in Boston, which opened in 1831. It was something of a sensation and became a major tourist attraction. I mean, we rarely think of a cemetery as a must-stop on a visit to a city. Unless, you know, Greenwood, Woodlawn, uh, Père Lachaise in Paris. There are some that get on our radar. But the fact is that people don't really visit cemeteries like they're intended to. And that's actually one of the reasons why we have such grand mausoleums as Woodlawn. At that point, people did visit the cemetery. And it was a way for the rich and the powerful to lobby history and remind everybody that they were powerful that they were influential, that they were movers and shakers. So one of the reasons that went away is because people stopped going to cemeteries. The other reason that went away is that we have an income tax now. Back in the Gilded Age, there was no income tax, and people didn't think about setting up uh, legacies via trusts, foundations, that sort of thing, which is really the way people lobby history now. I mean, certainly we have people as wealthy and outrageously wealthy in our age as they did back in the Gilded Age. But we have no expectation that Bill Gates is going to get put in one of these gigantic mausoleums just because it doesn't serve any purpose anymore. 
So that sort of moved away. And it's really fascinating because back then it was really very much part of the scene. Uh, Woodlawn was the preferred cemetery of New York society. You know, it was referred to as the 400. And you basically would hire a, a high class top drawer firm like McKim, Mead and White, and they would do your Park Avenue townhouse and they would do your Rhode Island mansion and they would do your Woodlawn mausoleum. It was all sort of of a piece. But getting back to the history of Woodlawn, it built on a very nice piece of land. It was a 400 acres of a sort of rolling farmland. So it had a very beautiful layout when it first opened. And on top of that, it also gave people who lived in New York much easier access than Greenwood Cemetery. At that time, getting to Brooklyn, where Greenwood is located, was a much bigger deal. There was no Brooklyn Bridge. There were no bridges at all over between New York and other cities, the city of Brooklyn, for example. And it was not considered a, a safe trip for women. So that meant that mothers, wives, frequently not included in cemetery parties. So when Woodlawn opened, that was a big change. One of the things that's also worth noting is that some of the earliest people interred in Woodlawn are people who were originally buried in Manhattan. The original churchyards downtown were either filled or too valuable as building property. So many of Woodlawn's earliest occupants are people who were moved here from Manhattan. So that, along with the fact that it's this wide open space, you can build these huge mausoleums, it's beautiful. It was really kind of like the hip and happening place. So what happens is at the height of the Gilded Age... You have these people who are flush with the power and wealth of this industrial era, the financiers, the robber barons, the manufacturers, the merchants. Aside from their Fifth Avenue and Park Avenue mansions, they were building pharaonic monuments to themselves at Woodlawn. So you have people like Russell Pope, Hunt and Hunt, James Renwick, McKim Mead and White. They all designed mausoleums here that drew inspiration from Greek, Roman, Egyptian tombs. And you're looking around, they're really sort of amazing. And we mentioned Collis Huntington, the railroad magnate, is buried here in a mausoleum that rests on a single 42-ton slab of granite, fronted by a reproduction of the main stairwell from the old Pennsylvania station. He's not alone. Jay Gould, famous robber baron of the era, is buried here in an unmarked mausoleum that looks like the Parthenon. And the reason it's unmarked is because back then there was fear of grave robbing. It was not unheard of for bodies to be exhumed and ransomed back to families of wealthy people. It's kind of crazy. You can't miss this thing. The fact that it has no name on it is meaningless. But among the other people buried here, J.C. Penney, Simon Guggenheim, uh, William Durant, the co-founder of General Motors, many of the Gilded Age figures made Woodlawn what it was in its early days. The thing that brought me to Woodlawn, I mean, there's such a huge number of people buried here. 300,000 people have been interred in Woodlawn. Many famous people, Carrie Chapman Cat, Elizabeth Cady Stent, uh, the suffragettes are here. Among journalists, Bat Masterson, Grantland Rice, Nellie Bly, Finley Peter Doon, who was a very famous columnist. I was kind of tickled to find that E.L. Doctorow is now buried at Woodlawn because I remember reading years ago his book, The Waterworks, having a scene set in Woodlawn Cemetery. They talk about art imitating life. I guess this is uh, death imitating art. Anyhow, among the people buried here, and one of the ones that drew me initially was Herman Melville. His grave which is up in an area called Catalpa, one of the first used areas of the cemetery. It's sort of modest area. There aren't a lot of mausoleums up there. But one of the things that really kind of struck me the first time I went there is that when you see the headstone, it features a quill and a blank scroll on it. 
suggestion of a life unwritten or, or, or a soul never expressed. Kind of amazing considering who's really there. One of the things that also really striking is that there's this gigantic oak tree right above the plot. And it's an old, really weather-beaten oak. The crown of the tree is, is gone, you know, maybe decapitated by lightning. You can't really tell. And the tree really grows in some very funny directions. But it grows. And for me as a writer, you know, I, I wonder if it wasn't nature, but Melville's nature that twisted this tree into this unusual shapes that it has. It's the kind of place like that that will get you thinking and put you in a lot of different directions. There are five mayors of New York in Woodlawn. And also a great nemesis of many mayors. Robert Moses is also buried here. It's kind of interesting because Moses was criticized greatly for the way some of his highways ripped up Bronx neighborhoods. And they do run past some of the cemeteries in the south of the boroughs, such as St. Raymond's. But it's very quiet at Woodlawn and Moses is buried here, away from his own highways. In any event, there are five New York mayors, of, of whom Fiorella LaGuardia is, is the most famous and probably the only one that most people will know off the cuff. But I discovered a fellow here by the name of John Perroy Mitchell, and this is what I was talking about in the way that Woodlawn acted for me as a sort of goad to understanding or getting a different take on the city history. John Perroy Mitchell was sort of a one-of-a-kind amalgam of urban visionary and, I don't know, sort of a priggish dolt. He was a little like Rudy Giuliani in that he rose to prominence as a crusading prosecutor, and he brought successful corruption cases against both the Manhattan and Bronx borough presidents. And also like Michael Bloomberg, he was a political outsider who saw the mayor's role as akin to that of a CEO of a company. In Mitchell's case, he staunchly believed it was the mayor's sole function in the life of the city. He makes no secret of his contempt for the obligatory glad-handing and horse-trading that's the bread and butter of most politicians. And this came back to really hurt his career. He was known as a boy mayor. He was elected at the age of 35 uh, on an independent anti-Tammany ticket, still the youngest mayor in, in uh, the city's history. He was also the grandson of the Irish journalist, patriot, and politician John Mitchell, whom he never knew and was an avid reformer, something of a role model for LaGuardia. But he lacked LaGuardia's sort of flamboyant common touch, and he was elegant and fiercely protective of his private life, uh, but didn't have political guile, but was a progressive through and through. You know, he sought city ownership of the subway. He championed vocational education. He was outspokenly anti-isolationist years before the United States entered the First World War and devised the first zoning plan in the country to govern city developments. He was kind of ahead of his time, and he seemed to have that reformer's zeal of liking to step on toes. And one of the things he did was he reformed a very corrupt and entrenched police department, and he investigated religious charities of all stripes for mismanagement of public funds, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish. He didn't care. One of the greatest things that he dealt with was a polio epidemic that struck the city in 1916. 2,500 children died, most of them under the age of five. And there was mass panic, quarantines. There was a tremendous amount of ethnic scapegoating that was going on, you know, a sense that the slums and immigrants had produced this catastrophe. And he was really up against it. He was under continual pressure from all sides when you see his correspondence, particularly from the business community in Washington. And they were on the verge of imposing an economically disastrous quarantine on the entire city. He was, as I said, elected as a reform mayor, but he was turned out of office in 1917 in a humiliating loss to a Tammany Act, John Island. 
at the conclusion of his term, he's still a young man, 38, 39 years old. He signed up uh, with the Air Corps to fight in the war. And he had long advocated U.S. intervention in the European War, which is another thing that didn't help him as mayor of New York because of the huge German and Irish voting blocs that were both opposed to the U.S. entrance. In any event, we'll never know what Mitchell might have done continuing public career, but it is training for the Air Corps in Louisiana. He fell out of his open cockpit plane while learning, and apparently because he didn't fashion his belt. According to several flyers on the ground, it was terrible to watch. He was flailed his arms and legs throughout a 3,000-foot fall, you know, working and recalibrating his body position in an attempt to hit the ground feast first, which he did. He bounced several yards and was dead when the first man reached him. I mentioned that LaGuardia is the most well-known mayor that we have buried in Woodlawn. He's buried in the Oakwood section with his second wife, Marie Fisher, who'd been his secretary. His first wife, Thea, and his infant daughter, Fioretta, are buried in another section of Woodlawn, the Lotus section, and they share a notable headstone that was executed by LaGuardia's great friend, the sculptor Attilio Picciarilli. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about the Picciarillis because they're one of the more fascinating families associated with Woodlawn. The Picciarillis were stonecutters originally from Carrera and very fine sculptors, some of them, especially Attilio. There were five brothers, all sculptors and stonecutters, and they came to New York and set up a very lucrative business transferring the work of others from clay models into stone. You may or may not know that many artists do not execute their own sculptures, and that's something that's done today by laser. Back then, it was done by hand. The picture really brothers carved the massive statue of the seated Abraham Lincoln for Daniel Chester French for the Lincoln Memorial, and they also did a lot of other stuff for French and other people around New York. But Attilio was also a very fine sculptor in his own right. At their apex, they were very successful. The Picciarilli studio was in the Mothaven section of the Bronx, and they employed as many as 100 stonecutters. It was an enormous warehouse. The family all lived next door, and they had a sort of reputation for unpretentious hospitality. The great opera singer Enrico Caruso was a close friend of Attilio's and a frequent guest of the house, as was LaGuardia. LaGuardia was originally the attorney for the Picciarillis before he went into politics. And he was extremely close to Attilio. He affectionately and respectfully called him Uncle Peach. The two had a standing Sunday dinner for over 20 years. Attilio Picciarilli was something of an uncle, a, a moral compass for LaGuardia. Despite the fact that their fortunes were moving in opposite directions, LaGuardia, a reformer, was evolving into a catalyst in a changing political scene. And Picciarilli, he was financially successful. He was at the classic school of figurative sculpting, which was about to become as anachronistic as the horse and buggy. So they were moving in different directions. But one of the things that happened is that when LaGuardia's first child died first, and then seven months later his first wife died, they were buried side by side in Woodlawn, and LaGuardia asked Picciarilli to do a special plaque stone for them. So there's a metal base relief on a headstone of Thea sitting, waiting for the baby to take its first steps towards her. And it's one of the more moving things to see in Woodlawn. The Picciarillis themselves have their own plot, it's, uh, south of 233rd Street in the uh, northwest quadrant of the cemetery, and it's very unique. First of all, there's no headstones. Picciarilli and his parents, his five brothers, many of their wives and children are beneath the grass that surrounds a bronze statue called Fortitude. That's a statue that you may recognize. It's, uh, one of the figures on the main memorial uh, on Columbus Circle in Manhattan. Uh, this is a copy. Uh, the original was part of the Sam Simeon collection of Randolph Hearst, whose newspaper sponsored the main memorial. 
And I think this statue was something of a moneymaker for the Picciarellis, who did funerary works as well as public works. There's at least one other copy of it in Woodlawn that I've seen. I think this was something that they kept for themselves, but it's also uh, in there. Now, LaGuardia himself is a hugely influential figure in New York City politics, but at the other end of the spectrum from the Picciarellis, he had a protege named Vito Marcantonio, who was a left-wing firebrand. So on one hand, he's friendly with the conservative old-world Picciarellis. On the other hand, his protege, Vito Marcantonio, who succeeded him at the congressman from Yorkville in East Harlem, uh, is also buried here in Woodlawn. And, and Marcantonio is a fascinating guy. He managed to do LaGuardia one better, becoming sort of this, this outrageous left-wing politician who was elected to Congress very on Republican, Democratic, and American Labor Party lines. He was a socialist at heart, though those things notwithstanding, and way out in front of things like civil rights, labor, welfare issues. He took a very strong pro-Soviet line during World War II, arguing, as the left would at that point, that the war's earliest days, that it was a creation of the, quote, Wall Street-Downing Street axis, and that the American people should opt for isolation, a stance he changed the day after Germany invaded the Soviet Union. Still, he managed to be a consummate local politician, and he was an effective advocate for his constituents, available every weekend without fail in his New York office. And he was basically impossible to defeat. It took a three-party coalition to finally get him out of office. But, you know, the love that his uh, district felt for him wasn't universal. You know, he's a favorite whipping boy of the New York Times, whose editorial pages characterized him as a left-wing demagogue and an embarrassment to the city. Worse, when he died in 1954, the Catholic Church, which was staunchly anti-red under Cardinal Spellman, would not allow a mass to be said for Mark Antonio or to bury him in a sacred ground. So he's buried just a few plots from LaGuardia. His headstone just reads, Congressman, Defender of Human Rights, and that sort of echoes LaGuardia's epitaph of statesman humanitarian, which, like the headstone of John Perroy Mitchell, chooses not to mention the fact that he was the mayor. Now, you know, the Mark Antonios and the LaGuardias remain close in death. That's not that uncommon. I mean, Woodlawn is sort of rife with similar cases, although none as cheeky as uh, Joe Seltzer and Charles Dale Marks. That was a vaudeville team known as Smith and Dale, and the duo worked together from the 1890s all the way through the 1950s when they were frequent guests on the Ed Sullivan Show. And they're reputed to have been the inspiration for the uh, dyspeptic geriatric duo in Neil Simon's play The Sunshine Boys. They're buried side by side in Woodlawn in the rhododendron section, and they have a very unusual headstone. The shared stone, which faces the cemetery's Park Avenue, is inscribed, Booked Solid. If you've got this sort of uh, hand-in-hand thing with Smith and Dale, there's sort of a game of one-upsmanship being played into the next world, just a few grave sites up the road from them. So this is really kind of a fascinating, one of the more fascinating aspects of Woodslaunt to me. Facing each other across the spoke-shaped convergence of five paths are the graves of two of jazz's most extraordinary musicians, Edward Kennedy, Duke Ellington, and Miles Davis. As with other areas of the arts, Woodlawn has more than a few notables from the jazz world. I mean, having got people from all over the music world, first of all, Oscar Hammerstein Sr. is buried in Woodlawn, Irving Berlin, George M. Cohan, Augustus Juilliard, who made a fortune in textiles and then was the president of the New York Metropolitan Opera for three decades before founding the Juilliard School, uh, is here as is the great Cuban diva Celia Cruz. The uh, rock musician Felix Papalardi is here, shot by his wife, interred in Woodlawn. And here, along with Duke and Miles, are Coleman Hawkins, Milt Jackson, Ornette Coleman, Lionel Hampton, 
Max Roach, Illinois Jaquette, Jonah Jones, uh, Jackie McLean, two of Duke's sidemen, Cootie Williams and Sonny Greer, uh, and the violinist Billy Bang. So it's really sort of become the jazz cemetery in New York. But the fascinating thing about the Duke, Ellington, Miles Davis thing, you know, first of all, Woodlawn legend has it that Ellington, who died in 1974, had the best attended interment in the cemetery history. And it may be that Celia Cruz, you know, eventually eclipsed that. I don't know. But despite a steady rain that day, there were hundreds of mourners on the rise of plots overlooking the resting place. Duke, you know, is universally regarded as jazz's greatest composer. And he was nothing if not unfailingly elegant and courtly. He had a graceful public persona that, you know, actually did suggest royalty in all its uh, sort of entitlements. Uh, and that may explain how Ellington came to be the only person in Woodlawn with two headstones. Yet the gravesite at the corner of Heather and Knollwood doesn't look grandiose. It's clean and spare, and no less elegant than its tenant. Its two headstones are placed beneath a lovely little grove of trees. You know, the grave of Miles, situated just across Heather Avenue, where fur comes in, is a bit more problematic. Unlike Duke, Miles had no interest in courting the public. On the contrary. To me, it was Miles, perhaps even more than James Dean or Marlon Brando, who made having a bad attitude so fashionable during the 50s, so unbelievably hip. And at a time when any African-American artist with commercial or creative aspirations had to be extremely careful attention to how he was perceived, Davis very pointedly would not. No, and he insisted instead that he be judged solely on his work, which for much of his 45 careers was absolutely the apex of the art form. So, one might reasonably expect Davis to be buried in a simple grave, designs echoing his public ethos. Here I am, take me or leave me, I don't care. Instead, he's in a huge black sarcophagus mounted on a low pedestal that stands behind a large slab of polished black stone, upon which two measures of music and the perplexing inscription, Sir Miles Davis, are carved. Now, as far as I know, the honorific was given from the Knights of the Grand Cross and the Sovereign Military Hospital to your Order of St. John of Jerusalem, of Rhodes, and of Malta. That's a successor to the 900-year-old Order of the Knights of Malta that inspired Dashiell Hammett to write about a falcon. Today, it's really a charity thing. You know, it's, it's expected that you'll do this, and it's for charitable work. I've never heard Miles use the term honorific of Sir prior to this. I have to believe, really, that he did all this to kind of give the needle to Duke Ellington. I don't think there's any bad blood between them. I mean, if you read Miles Davis's autobiography, he has nothing of praise for Duke Ellington. He unswervingly gives him the highest praise in his lexicon, which is, I can't repeat. But it's just no way that he just happened to be buried across the road from Duke Ellington and to bill himself as sir. So it kind of fascinates me to see people going in debt and continuing to sort of play the games that they did in life. Behind Miles, interestingly enough, is an unmarked grave of one of the Nicholas brothers, Harold Nicholas, the great tap dancers who were associated with the jazz scene of the 40s and 50s. And I'm not sure why it's unmarked, but there it is. And there are, in fact, a fair number of unmarked graves throughout Woodlawn. Uh, one of the ones that really fascinated me the most, a fellow named Orson Fowler, who was a phrenologist in the 19th century. The Fowlers were a very unique and impressive family. Orson's sister, Elmira, was one of the first American women to get a medical degree. And his sister-in-law, Lydia, was the first female professor of medicine at an American university. But their notoriety was earned by Orson and his brother, Lorenzo, who, along with their brother-in-law, Samuel Wells, were America's leading phrenologists. Now, 
that's something that was popular in the 19th century and that we ridicule now, the notion of a physical correlation between the shape of the skull and the personality and intelligence. But back then, the field enjoyed a great deal of traction as a science of the mind of the 19th century. And the Fowlers had thousands of clients, including John Brown, Clara Barton, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Horace Mann, Matthew Brady, Alan Pinkerton. I mean, they also did screening and employment tests for a lot of Manhattan's leading businesses in order to help determine whether a prospective employer had the proper facilities and propensities to succeed in a particular position. And they even had the same kind of thing for marital compatibility. They would do phrenological exams to see if you had compatible head shapes for this. They also toured with a presentation on phrenology and did 25 set examinations that were very, very popular, sort of the trip through the sticks that they would do. That they positioned themselves as practitioners and popularizers of phrenology was you know, not well accepted because they were seen as uh, uh, hustlers. You know, uh, the people who started this stuff, the, the, the European psychiatrists and neurologists, they didn't think this was the stuff for business. But Fowler and Wells did. They had a sort of museum that was second only to Barnum as a tourist attraction that had exhibits that they gave readings and consultations and scientific and health causes, including mesmerism and hydropathy and vegetarianism and animal magnetism, you know, all, all sorts of uh, sort of wide-eyed stuff. But their big money maker was a publishing company. And they put out all these scientific journals about things like hydropathy. And they had popular titles, how to talk, how to behave, how to write. And Orson believed that the greatest shape for building was a circle, right? That you got the most room for a circle. So he came up with the notion that an octagon was the closest convenient shape for building rather than a square. And he came up with this book called A Home for All that was the bestseller of the time. And there were like 60,000 of these houses were built, octagonal homes were built throughout the century. And he had an enormous one on the Hudson River that uh, was built with local gravel and eventually collapsed. It was a 60-room house. So he was really sort of the star of Fowler and Wells. But it's interesting. Fowler and Wells has only one title in its publishing catalog that ever survived, and that is Walt Whitman talked them into putting out leaves of grass. Now, Whitman was a bit of a hustler, uh, and he also subscribed to all of many of these things that the Fowlers talked about. I mean, he sold their books, and he agreed with them that physiology was destiny. When you read his poems, you can see that he believes that the body offers clues and manifestations to the mind and spirit or in the jargon of phrenology in his poems. And there's a one bit where he writes about the perfect head and bowels and bones were the easy gate through which the soul comes and appears to sight. He, he was a canny self-promoter in vain, Whitman. He's proud of his physique. He included a daguerreotype portrait as a front piece to leaves of grass. And he liberally promoted the results of his phrenological reading by the Fowlers publishing it several times in his life, and it apparently it got successively more flattering with each publication. How he came to finagle a publishing deal out of the Fowlers is anybody's guess, and I had some fun guessing in my book, but it's suffice to say they published the second edition of Leaves of Grass, which added 20 poems, including one which was then called The Sundown Poem, and subsequently published in later versions uh, under the title Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, one of the most famous poems about New York City and about America. Before leaving Woodlawn, I'd just like to take a moment to note someone who caught my attention is sort of uh, back in, in the literary eye these days, uh, and that is a woman named Ruth Nichols, 
who was an early flyer. She's buried at Woodlawn. She was a member of the 99s, along with Amelia Earhart, which was an exclusive flying organization for women. She was a friend and competitor with Earhart and always wanted to keep flying. She, she eventually took her own life when she was in her 50s. But prior to that, had applied to try and become part of the Mercury program, even though she was in her 50s. And she was given a sort of audition, although I suspect it was a complete sham and it tended only to, you know, sort of drum up interest in the Mercury program because... In fact, the Mercury program did suggest that they were going to have women, and one of them, Jerry Cobb, finished all three phases of the physical training, and she came into the program with more than 10,000 hours of flight time, which was more than Alan Shepard and double that of John Glenn. But she was bounced along with the other nine women when the Air Force changed the rules and said you could only use hours that were uh, earned in the military, which meant there couldn't be any women because the military had no women flyers at that point. So... Anyhow, Ruth Nichols is back in the news because there's a book out by Keith O'Brien called Fly Girls that talks about the early female flyers of that era. And it's just to me another example that what gets buried doesn't stay buried. If you visit Woodlawn, I hope you have a wonderful time. My name is Fred Goodman. I'm the author of The Secret City. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcast at GothamCenter.org sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. 